1965, a group of Palestinian students gathered in an apartment in Frankfurt, Germany, to strategize and plot attacks against Israel. Little did they know that the Mossad, Israel's intelligence agency, had bugged the flat and could hear every word. There was much debate about what to do with these students. Rafa Eitan, who was the head of the Mossad's European operations, was clear. Let's kill this thing in its infancy, he remembered in a 2017 documentary series on the Mossad. You enter the apartment, he said, and shoot whoever you think needs to be shot. Some of the Mossad agreed, but most did not, and the operation wasn't approved. They were just students, went the thinking. Perhaps they'll cause little trouble, but they're not a major threat, like Egypt. Decades later, those who opposed the idea probably came to regret it. Those students led a movement that killed thousands of Israelis over the next four decades, then became arguably the most famous terrorist group in history. Present in the apartment that day were the movement's two leaders. One was named Khalil al-Wazir, a Palestinian refugee born near Tel Aviv in 1935, whose family had been expelled to Gaza during the War of Independence. He went by the name Abu Jihad, meaning father of the struggle. The other leader had more opaque origins. He claimed to have been born in Jerusalem, so would have been an original Palestinian refugee, but he was more likely born in Cairo in 1929. He was an active Arab nationalist and had studied civil engineering. He went by the name Abu Amar. But his real name is the one most familiar to us, Yasser Arafat. For the next 40 years, Yasser Arafat would be Israel's main antagonist, an arch-terrorist with the blood of thousands on his hands. It's easy to lump the Arabs together in one big enemy of Israel, but I actually think we ought to know about this moment in the mid-1960s, just before the Six-Day War in 1967. Because while the Arabs were united in hating Israel, that was about all they could agree on. Palestinian terrorism wasn't just a problem for Israel, it also caused problems for the Arab states, and I think it's really interesting to learn about, and important for understanding the whys and hows of what comes later. So today, we're talking about Palestinian terrorism, I'm your host, Jason Harris. Welcome to the 100th, 100th episode of Jew I Don't Know. Wow, very cool. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. Back in 1959, Yasser Arafat and Khalil al-Wazir founded an organization they called Fatah, which means victory or conquest in Arabic. That was the group meeting in the Frankfurt apartment in 1965. Fatah was formed out of frustration with Egypt, specifically its president, Gamal Abdel Nasser. Nasser championed himself as defender of the Palestinians, which meant he ought to be attacking Israel, but lately he had been restrained. In the early 1950s, Nasser supported the Fedayeen, the Palestinian and Egyptian militants who crossed the frontier to stage attacks inside Israel. But the Sinai War in 1956 was fought in part to stop those attacks, and it worked. Things were mostly quiet on Israel's border with Egypt, and Nasser intended to keep it that way. He didn't have the military strength to take on Israel again. So he wasn't excited about a new group of Palestinian terrorists making trouble from his territory. And in fact, he banned them from launching attacks. And anyway, Nazar wanted to be the lead guy coordinating the Arab world against Israel. He didn't want a bunch of excitable Palestinians upstaging his efforts. Or his ego. 
And remember too that Nasser and the other Arab countries didn't really care that much about the Palestinians, except where they could be a useful propaganda tool against Israel. Nearly everywhere, the original 720,000 Palestinian refugees from 1948, who were growing in numbers, they were left destitute and crowded into slums without much prospect for employment, healthcare, or education. They were officially stateless, not entitled to basic civil rights, even though they were living in Egypt, Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon, and other places. Rather than absorb and integrate the Palestinians, the Arab countries were content to leave them in misery. It made Israel look bad, and it made the Arab dictators look good pretending to advocate on their behalf. If the Palestinians were to integrate, it would rob the Arab leaders of a convenient distraction from the political chaos and economic misery in their own rule. The Palestinians were aware of all this and resented it. There was not a lot of love lost between the refugees and the Arab leaders. Arafat and al-Wazir founded Fatah on the idea that if the Palestinians wanted liberation through Israel's defeat, they would have to do it themselves. Their strategy was armed struggle, to continue the violent opposition to Zionism that the Palestinians had started in the 1920s and 30s. Armed struggle was the essential purpose of Fatah, continuing the same war that had been raged decades earlier. But this time, they would be independent of Israel's Arab neighbors. They would recruit amongst the Palestinians and carry out operations using Palestinian fighters whom they could train. Yasser Arafat already had some experience. He had spent four years living in the old city of Jerusalem during the 1930s, and by the 1940s was committed to the ideologies of Arab nationalism and anti-Zionism. As a student in Cairo in the late 1940s, he helped smuggle weapons into what was then the British Mandate in Palestine to fight against the Jews. In 1948, he fought in Gaza with the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood, an Islamic political organization that held great sway in Egypt and was later banned. He had an active interest in Judaism and Jewish history. As a young man, he would sometimes attend synagogue in Cairo to see what the Jews were like, and he was well-read with the early Zionist leaders like Theodore Herzl. In the mid-1950s, he was the head of the main Palestinian student group at the university, an active organizer. He was associated with the Fedayeen terrorists attacking Israel, which led to the Sinai War in 1956, and after the war, he was all but tossed out of Egypt. So he went to Kuwait, and it was there that he reunited with a friend he had first met in Egypt, Khalil al-Wazir, later known as Abu Jihad. Al-Wazir, too, had previously been in Egypt getting military training during the 1950s, and he had been amongst the Fedayeen sneaking into Israel to carry out attacks. But he had also been jailed in Egypt for his involvement with the Muslim Brotherhood because it was opposed to Nasser's rule. Al-Wazir was sent to Saudi Arabia, and from there he ended up in Kuwait with Arafat. Together, they started recruiting Palestinian students to band together in the organization they named, in 1959, Fatah. So to sum up, Fatah was an organization of young Palestinians, mostly recently out of college, and who mostly came from Egypt or Lebanon but were now living in Kuwait. Most of them had studied at university in Cairo and Beirut, and many of them had joined with the Fedayeen terrorists during the 1950s to attack Israel. It was a smart, experienced, driven bunch, and by the early 1960s they had attracted the attention of Israeli intelligence. But except for a few far-sighted individuals who wanted to cut off Fatah's head at the outset, most of the rest of Israel's officials believed that Fatah would be a nuisance at worst. Far less of a threat than the Arab countries, especially Egypt, 
And strangely enough, in the first half of a decade, the biggest threat to Fatah was not Israel, but the other Arab states. Now, the Arab countries were not about to let the Palestinians go it alone against Israel. They wanted to be the ones controlling any efforts against Israel, since, remember, that's how the Arab dictators made themselves look like champions of the people, especially President Nasser of Egypt. Nasser imagined himself the big man of the Middle East. He believed strongly in Arab unity, what we call pan-Arabism, or Arab nationalism. The idea that the Arab countries should all be united in their purposes, and all equal amongst themselves. Well, except for Nasser himself, who should naturally be the first. Since coming to power in the early 1950s, he had been pushing this agenda, with varying degrees of success and setbacks. Now, I could go on a long tangent about Arab politics in the early 1960s, which is actually very interesting. Or, since this is Jew I don't know, I could just sum up and tell you that the Arab countries were far from united. Indeed, sometimes they were even at war with each other. Nasser was hugely influential, but other Arab leaders resented him for it. The Arab countries certainly cooperated on some things, but on others they were too different in their politics, economics, ideologies, and what sides they were picking in the Cold War. Egypt and Syria, for instance, sided with the Soviet Union. Jordan leaned more towards the United States. But to make a very long story short, they could all agree that they didn't want an independent Palestinian state, and therefore an independent Palestinian militia running around. So they decided to undermine Fatah by creating their own Palestinian organization, which they would control. So in 1964, the leaders of the Arab states got together to create a body that was intended to represent all the Palestinians. It was called the Palestine Liberation Organization, the PLO, and it would become the most famous terrorist organization in history. The PLO declared it inevitable that Palestine would have to be liberated by force, so set forth its intention to wage armed struggle against Israel. No diplomacy, no negotiation. Across 29 clauses, it made the case for Palestine as a single, indivisible territory that rightfully belongs only to the Palestinians, themselves a part of the wider Arab nation. The Charter declared the right of the Palestinians to wage a holy war in pursuit of their liberation and imagined a future in which the Palestinians would have self-determination in their restored homeland, in which there would be peace and tranquility. You can see the influence of Nasser in his focus on pan-Arab nationalism, for Palestinian liberation is described as inseparable from and necessary for the unity of all Arabs, and the armed struggle is a national duty required of everyone. Under the PLO's charter, the creation of Israel and the United Nations Partition of 1947 were declared null and void because they were contrary to the wishes of the Palestinian people. Zionism, the charter declared, is racist, fascist, colonialist. Jews themselves are not a single people or a nationality. Judaism is only a religion, and Jews can only be citizens of the countries where they live and not ever have a state of their own. Indeed, Israel is the permanent source of tension and turmoil in the Middle East. Peace can only be attained when the world backs the Palestinians in their fight for liberation and outlaws Zionism. Now, the PLO was the creation of the Arab states, who had no intention of allowing the Palestinians free reign over their own organization. 
The last part of the PLO charter declares that the PLO is in charge of the movement to liberate the Palestinian homeland, and it will cooperate with all the Arab governments and, crucially, won't interfere in the other country's business. Its funding, see, the money is always important, its funding and logistical support will come from the Arab countries. The point, in other words, was to have a Palestinian organization that the Arab states, especially President Nasser, could control. Now, one thing that's important to note is that the PLO isn't a single organization. It's a representative body made up of a bunch of separate Palestinian organizations coming together under this one PLO roof, kind of like a parliament. And the biggest faction was Fatah. But remember, Fatah is also kind of a rival to the PLO, since Fatah doesn't want to be under the control of any of the Arab countries. It's a tension that will have important implications later in the 1960s. But meanwhile, by the middle of the decade, Fatah was ready to strike Israel. On January 1st, 1965, Fatah initiated its first attack on Israel. Khalil al-Wazir, known as Abu Jihad, wanted to strike a relevant and symbolic target, so they chose the brand new national water carrier, specifically the pumping station on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. It wasn't much of a success. One group of infiltrators was stopped along the border by Lebanese authorities. The other group came in from Syria and managed to make it to the pumping station. But the bomb they planted was a dud, and they were caught by an Israeli army patrol. So the operation was a bust, but the publicity was totally not. Fatah generated excitement all over the Arab world, especially amongst the Palestinians. Finally, a group was bringing the fight to the Israelis. Finally, there was a group that backed up their talk of Palestinian liberation with action. The failed first operation was just the start, and Fatah got better as 1965 turned into 1966. Fatah staged almost a hundred attacks in Israel, a constant, weekly drumbeat of infiltrations and Israeli casualties, both soldiers and civilians. Mostly Fatah attacked from bases in Syria, but sometimes also Jordan and Lebanon. Fatah planted landmines on roads patrolled by the army, they sabotaged train tracks and other infrastructure, and they even planted explosives on kibbutzim near the border, blowing up houses and killing civilians. A couple dozen Israelis were killed, several score were wounded. Although terrorism had never really ceased since the Sinai War in 1956, it had been greatly reduced. And now, ten years later, Israelis were starting to feel that creeping sense of dread and vulnerability again. The Israeli government, like in the mid-1950s, was looking powerless, and Prime Minister Levi Eshkol was trying to figure out what to do. So once again, Israel was confronted with the confounding problem of what to do about terrorism. In the 1950s, the answer was retaliation, hitting back from where the terrorists struck. There was an upside to that strategy. It made Israelis feel better, it punished the terrorists, and it sent a strong message of strength to whomever was thinking about attacking Israel next. The downside was that retaliation didn't succeed in ending terrorism, and it was a dicey business, because the terrorists often hid amongst the civilian population. When retaliation went wrong, a lot of innocent people could get killed, and Israel would look bad in the court of public opinion, not just in Israel, but around the world. Now, in the mid-1960s, Prime Minister Eshkol reached for the same playbook. On November 11, 1966, 
Three Israeli soldiers were killed when their jeep hit a landmine planted by Fatah along the Israeli-Jordanian border in the West Bank. The Fatah terrorists had come from the nearby village of Asamu, in the southern end of the West Bank, which, remember, was Jordanian territory back then. Israel decided to retaliate. They would go in there, destroy a bunch of buildings and houses as punishment and deterrence, and pull back out. It was a controversial decision amongst Israeli security officials because most Fatah attacks came from Syria, not Jordan. If you want to hurt Fatah, Syria was the better place to strike. The Syrian government was supportive of Fatah, the Jordanians much less so. King Hussein of Jordan was then 29 years old and a moderate when it came to Israel. He wasn't filled with burning hate of his fellow leaders in Egypt or Syria, and in fact didn't get along with those countries particularly well. Syria and Jordan had their own water conflicts, and King Hussein wasn't very popular amongst the Palestinians in his kingdom either. He was present when a Palestinian assassin had killed his grandfather in 1951, an experience which he never forgot. In 1963, the king initiated secret meetings with the Israelis in London, held at the home of his British-Jewish doctor. He also developed a good relationship with Golda Meir, Israel's foreign minister. Israel and Jordan agreed to share water from the Jordan River and to cooperate on various other things as well. By the mid-1960s, it was a secret, precarious, but improving relationship. But apparently King Hussein had a particular request of the Israelis that they not stage any military operations on his territory. If they did, it would increase unrest and generate more anger and resentment, especially amongst the Palestinians, and especially directed at the king, who would look weak. But now, after this Fatah attack from Jordan killed three Israeli soldiers and the Israeli public demanded that the government take action against terrorism, Prime Minister Eshkol ordered the retaliation raid on Asamu, the village in Jordan. It was supposed to be quick, not cause too much damage, and send a clear message. But as I mentioned, the danger with retaliation is that things can go wrong. And they did. Two days after the soldiers were killed by Fatah, the Israeli army entered the West Bank on November 13, 1966, and headed towards the village of Asamu. Backed by several tanks and several hundred soldiers, the IDF ordered the town's 3,000 residents out of their homes. The army then destroyed perhaps 100 homes and other buildings in total, though different numbers were claimed by all sides later. No one was hurt, and it seemed the quick operation would wrap up with ease. But the Jordanian army had gotten wind that, the, that Israel had crossed the border, though they were confused exactly where. The army mobilized out on the main road, which would pass through Asamu. You can see where this is going. As the Israelis wrapped up their operation in the town, the Jordanian army suddenly appeared, surprising the IDF. The Israelis thought they were being attacked and started firing. A battle broke out, and the Jordanians were hit hard and pushed back out of town. The Jordanian Air Force sent several planes into the scene, so the Israeli Air Force responded, and now an air battle broke out too. One Jordanian plane was shot down, and an Israeli jet took hits as well. By the end of it, 16 Jordanian soldiers were killed along with three civilians. The Israeli commander in Asamu was also killed, and multiple Israeli soldiers were wounded. Everyone went back to their corners, but the damage was done. The aftermath went pretty much how King Hussein predicted. 
His Jordanian subjects were pissed, and the Palestinians absolutely enraged. They rioted against the king throughout the West Bank. The Jordanian police killed four Palestinian protesters. Egypt and Syria also railed against King Hussein, accusing him of being weak or maybe even in cahoots with the CIA to support the Zionists. King Hussein in turn complained that his fellow Arab leaders wouldn't back him up. Part of President Nazar's whole Arab unity appeal was that other states would help out if any one of them was attacked by Israel. Instead, Nazar and the Egyptian army just sat there doing nothing. The Palestinian Liberation Organization also condemned King Hussein and demanded his replacement. He was already on bad terms with them. A few months before the attack on Asamu, Hussein had officially renounced his support for the PLO. He was worried that the PLO's popularity amongst the Palestinians in Jordan and the West Bank would threaten his rule, a problem that would get worse until actual war broke out between the Jordanian army and the PLO, but that was not until 1970. So from Israel's perspective, the attack on Asamu was interesting because it revealed publicly how divided the Arab leaders were. They obviously didn't get along, and this seemed like a good thing. If they're arguing so much over one small battle, how could they ever organize to attack Israel together all at once? It seemed unlikely. But in other ways, the attack on Asamu was a very bad omen. For one thing, it earned Israel international condemnation, including from its allies like Britain and the United States. The Americans were especially annoyed. By attacking Jordan, which the United States supported, instead of Syria, which the Soviets supported, Israel made the United States look bad. The United Nations Security Council issued a resolution officially censoring Israel for its attack on Jordanian territory. No mention was made of the terrorism that was coming from said territory, of course. But even within Israel, there was a lot of criticism of the Prime Minister, Levi Eshkol. Both David Ben-Gurion and Moshe Dayan thought Israel should have attacked Syria, since most of the Fatah attacks came from there. The attack on Jordan made King Hussein look weak at a time when the relationship between him and Israel was actually improving. Instead of getting closer to Israel, now Hussein would have to stick with the Egyptians and the Syrians, even though he didn't really want to. For his part, Prime Minister Eshkol was unmoved. Fatah had launched more than a dozen attacks on Israel from Jordan, he said, and therefore Jordan cannot be immune from responsibility. He insisted that Israel will strike back at terrorists from wherever territory they operate from. But Eshkol and everyone else knew what wasn't being said. Retaliation wasn't very effective against Palestinian terrorism. But still, in the mid-1960s, Israel simply didn't have a better solution. <laughs> Historians debate how much impact the attack on As-Samu had on the coming Six-Day War of 1967. Some argue that it heavily influenced King Hussein to join the war against Israel. Others say that it was just one incident amongst a very complex situation that led to war. Either way, it was a very serious incident and increased tension with Jordan on the eastern border at a time when Israel was facing trouble in the south with Egypt and the north with Syria. By the end of 1966 and the beginning of 1967, everyone was getting nervous that another war was coming. So Israel was looking for support in the world, and especially new and better weapons. It turned increasingly to a country that had been generally lukewarm towards Israel in the 1950s, but was growing friendlier by the minute. The United States. It's the most important relationship Israel has ever had. In the 1960s, we start to see the beginnings of the closeness that persists to this day.
As always, you can visit my website at jewaudonno.com and you can email me jewaudonnopodcast at gmail.com. The music today was Ramzi Ambaredwan and Camilla Jubran. Thanks for listening to the 100th episode of Jew I Don't Know. Talk to you next time. Lehitraot. See you later. So, <laughs> till